Uh, okay, let me uh, <coughs> introduce just a minute. Uh, did you bring the articles, Mark, the ones I was looking at over here was there on this thing? with yeah. the, Okay, the articles that Mark brought dealing with the 70 A.D. heresy. Uh, the, uh, there's been debate on this for years. The word heresy, I really have problems with sometimes. Uh, nobody is any, say this good and loud for the tape, nobody's any quicker, nobody's any quicker than my brethren in the Church of Christ to brand as a heretic anybody who differs with them on any single solitary point. Uh, we have fought and split over everything from how many cups to take the Lord's Supper to uh, whether or not we can uh, sport orphan homes out of the treasurer or we can cooperate in something like the Herald of Truth and a lot of other things all through the, all through the years. Uh, and, but we've studied fellowship, and that we won't, I won't get in, into that. But suffice it to say, uh, on the 70 A.D. thing, uh, on the article there and any heresy involved, one of the reasons for handing out a lot of the materials is that when I got into research and in studying this a number of years back, and it was before, I, I guess it's been within the last 17, 18 years, and I read everything I could get on it, what happened to me is that uh, initially that uh, I come from the same background of having been taught the second coming of Christ with Christ coming back riding a cloud and an angel blowing the trumpet, uh, Revelation written in 95, 96 a A.D., uh, the same background that uh, most others within the church and the, Pro and the Protestant realm. And we noted at the very beginning on there of our study on this, one of the first things that happens to anybody that studies this, if you were brought up studying the King James Bible, and then you began to read from the newer translations, the first thing you pick up on, not the first, but on this area, one of the first things, is that every time you find the term end of the world in the King James, it's the consummation of the age uh, in, the, in the newer translations, which is accurate. So the end of, there's no such statement uh, as end of the world in the New Testament referring to a judgment situation. It's not there. There's no such statement as second coming of Christ in the New Testament. The statement as such is, uh, is not there. Not only did uh, that we have that with the uh, uh, end of the world, but as you study the Old Testament, and we've already done that in, in our preceding Revelation, you find that a, a lot of passages that are taken in a literal way in the New Testament, Jesus coming on the clouds, the stars falling from the heaven, sun and the moon not given their life, earth shaken, uh, the burning of fire and, and pitch and, and the fire not going out, etc. These passages that are taken in a literal way, preached in a literal way, are without exception found in the Old Testament dealing with prophecies of Babylon, Edom, Egypt, Jerusalem, uh, the ten tribes, and other places. It was poetic, metaphor language, idioms, 
used in a traditional way by the prophets. And when you read those passages, you don't have any problem seeing that they apply to those particular countries. When those same passages are used in the New Testament, they are often taken in a literal way, at least much of it. Many New Testament Christians have never really even seriously studied uh, the Old Testament. Uh, many Church of Christ preachers don't even get in the pulpit with an Old Testament. I mean, all we, I was told, one of the first things I was told is back there is that all you need is a New Testament, you know, and I used to get up there with just a New Testament also. But anyway, it's found there. That's and it's used in a in a figurative sense. Uh, when we went through the Gospels, we noted that any time a time frame was put on this judgment situation, it was always during the lifetime of the people in that day, before they finished going through the cities of Israel. Matthew ten twenty three. While some of you are still living, Matthew sixteen twenty seven twenty eight. During that generation, Matthew 23 and also Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and also Mark 8, 38 through 9, 1. Anytime a time frame was there, it was going to be happening during that generation. When we get into the letters and this judgment situation is talked about, it's always an imminent thing, uh, near at hand. Uh, the end of all things at hand. First Peter four seven. First Peter four seventeen. James five seven and eight. Revelation the first chapter, the third chapter, and the twenty second chapter. Uh, always an imminent thing. So I'm saying this judgment situation in the <coughs> New Testament is number one talking about not the end of the world, but the consummation of the age. The word end of the world is simply not there. It's talking about uh, a judgment situation that was to happen in that generation. And it uses two phrases. It does ju doesn't just say the time is at hand or it's near at hand. It says that in connection with this will happen during this generation. Okay, there, the, the first, the, the teaching of Jesus, what it would be during that generation. And then as we come towards the end of that generation, then we read the statements that it was, it was near at hand even at the door. Each of these, uh, when Jesus spoke of this judgment situation, he was always talking to Jewish religious leaders. Uh, he told them they would be held accountable for all the righteous blood that had been taken from Abel to Zechariah, the first and the last righteous person in the Old Testament record that was murdered. And that's in Matthew 23, 23 through 39. He said that all of their blood would be required of that generation that was in the process of crucifying the Messiah. He said they would kill him, just like they had killed the prophets. They were going to make life miserable for and kill the apostles too, and judgment would come on them to the uttermost. As we go through the book of Acts, we find that uh, the Christians are constantly persecuted by the Jews who reject Christ. And even when Rome has Paul in bondage, it's protecting from the Jews. Uh, the number one enemy of the church was the Jews that rejected Christ. Up until about 64. Okay? In 64 AD is when Nero began the official persecution of Christians. It lasted for four years, from 64 to 68 AD. 
It was the severest persecution and the first official to take place on the Christians. It was so bad that even historians, Roman historians like Tacitus, was appalled uh, at the wickedness of, of Nero during that period of time. So the Christians got it first from the Jew, then from the Jew and the Roman. In 66 AD, Israel and Rome will go to war. It will culminate in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the temple. With the downfall of the temple, Judaism as practiced under the law of Moses goes down the tubes. There will be no more offering of animal sacrifices. There's no temple, no Jewish worship. All the records are destroyed. There isn't a Jew alive today that could prove he is a Levite if he is one. All the records were destroyed. The Messiah was to come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, if the Messiah comes today, there's no way he could prove what tribe he come from. All the records have, have been destroyed. The destruction of Jerusalem and, and the temple was the most catastrophic event in the history of the nation of Israel, and to this day, they still look on it as, as the most catastrophic event. All the apostles were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The early church was made up of Jews. It was the most emotional possible thing that any of them could experience. No. Okay. In the entire New Testament, there is not one single reference to the destruction of Jerusalem or the downfall of the temple. A.T. Robinson and his redating of the New Testament makes a point in discussing the dating of every book that all through the centuries, scholars have recognized this, that here you have the most catastrophic event in the history of the nation of Israel. The most catastrophic event in the history of the early church in that first generation. And yet there is absolutely no mention of it in the past tense in the New Testament. Very strong evidence that the entire New Testament was completed before the event. Top scholars all through the centuries have recognized that the internal evidence, now we're on Revelation, the internal evidence of Revelation was before the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, now, on these papers I handed out, the reason for handing so many out and, and allowing you to look at some of the names is that many of those today who teach the second coming of Christ and with Revelation written in 95-96 A.D. Teach that in such a way that it's, it's heresy for anybody to believe anything to the contrary. When you pick up any of your traditional Bibles, it'll have 95-96 A.D. there. The most interesting thing to me, among others, that I found out when I got into researching this, is that through the centuries, absolutely the top scholars all through the centuries, there's never been a time but the top scholars have applied revelation before the time of Nero and the destruction of Jerusalem. Men like Robert Young uh, from Young's Analytical Concordance, men like Jim McDonald on the life and times of John the Apostle, a, a work that is parallel to Coinbee and Housen's work on the life and times of, of Paul, Westcott and Hort, who headed the committee that uh, revised the King James and did the 1901 American Standard, considered the most literal translation of the English language ever been made, put Revelation before 70 A.D. Men such as Lightfoot 
outstanding <coughs> scholar. One of the outstanding scholars of our present time in, in dating, John A.T. Robinson's put Revelation in all the books before 70 A.D. F.F. F. Bruce, right now, is in a position, at least the last reading I've got, where he leans in that direction. In other words, he has, in the past, put uh, Revelation before, uh, or in 95-96, uh, he now is leaning to before 70 A.D. Now, among some of the falsehoods that's been propagated, this, this is another one that blew my mind when I got into it. You see, one of the reasons that there's no question in anybody's mind that it, that it never has been a question that it was either before 70 A.D. or at 95-96. Now, this, the, real, the reason that these two dates keep coming up is that we know that Revelation was written at a time when Christians were undergoing persecution. Tell them we're having to study, Tammy. It's written at a time when, when Christians were undergoing severe persecution. Uh, John himself has been banished to the Isle of Patmos as a result of the persecution. And so we know that then, that he's been banished. Uh, they are his fellow sufferers. They're in, they're in persecution. We know that the persecution is uh, coming from Jews. We also know it's coming from the Roman Empire. Uh, that, and so you've got that involved. All right. The historians would say, when you, when you read the records of Domitian and Nero, that the only, in that first century, the only two times it fit that was Nero and Domitian. And you was always told, as I was, if you've read on this, that Christians were persecuted during the time of Domitian, uh, just like they were during the time of, of Nero. Okay, now, one of the things that has come out in recent scholarship is that this teaching that Christians were persecuted during the time of Domitian stands without any factual evidence at all. There is no historical record of one single solitary Christian going to their death under Domitian. Uh, there were some problems with Domitian. His problems was mostly from the aristocracy uh, in Rome. And he had some problems with the Jews. And there may have been a few things, differences with the Christians. Uh, but there is no evidence that Christians died. F.F. F. Bruce points this out, and in this material on John A.T. Robinson, one of the things I'd like you to point out is that his historical study there showing there is no evidence of any severe persecution. When you read from scholars today, they'll tell you that Christian scholars in the later centuries exaggerated uh, the, the persecution that took place at the time of Domitian. On the other hand, with Nero, there's no question. All ALL scholars... Christian and pagan are united that Nero was the first emperor to begin official persecution of Christians, and not only did he begin it, it was the most severe form possible. It started in Rome, uh, the city of Rome burnt in 64, he shifted blame to the Christians, uh, Christians were thrown in the arena with animals, they were burned at the stake. Uh, it was officially banned as a religion, illegal to be a, uh, a Christian. And, and there has never been, in other words, what happened under Domitian didn't even compare 
didn't even begin to compare with what happened under Nero. Uh, Uh, what Clark quoted, see, Clark is a, from the past century. Clark quoted church fathers beginning with about the 4th and 5th century. Okay? And what they did, in other words, the latest scholarship would say that, that what was said about Domitian was exaggerated. In other words, that, that when we go back to the sources at that time, that 1st and 2nd century, there is not a record of one single solitary Christian dying under Domitian. Not one. Did he not mention anything about uh, Polycarp or Irenaeus, anything about Domitian? Now, Polycarp, uh, Irenaeus, the, the whole date, in fact, this is all in the, the notes there, when John, on the thing. The, the whole dating in 96 is on an external statement having nothing to do with the internal evidence. And that is Irenaeus writing in 175 made reference to the fact that he had a conversation with Polycarp who was a convert either by John or right about that time, one of the disciples of John. Polycarp stated that he saw John or the Revelation uh, almost in their generation, which puts it back in the latter part of the first century. Okay. The word where he saw, it could, be, it could be translated from the Greek, he saw it or he saw him in the latter part. In other words, the statement by Polycarp is ambiguous as to whether he was saying, whether he was saying that he saw John or that John saw the revelation in the last part. Of, of, of that uh, century. All right, on that one statement, that was the evidence for the, there's two things, okay, that gave evidence for 95 to 96 AD. One, the statement by Irenaeus in 175, stating that, again, his information secondhand from Polycarp, who said that he either saw, and again, it's an ambiguous statement where the Greek can be taken either way, either John or John saw the revelation during the latter part of the first century, okay? And so it can be taken either way, it was secondhand. Irenaeus knows nothing about any Christians dying under Domitian. Polycarp says nothing about any Christians. In other words, there is not one single solitary historical statement, to the best of my knowledge on the latest research, that says even one Christian died under Domitian. Not one. Okay, then, is, is this uh, new evidence, or maybe it's not new evidence, for Domitian not being a persecutor of Christians? And if so, when did this start, and why is it just so widespread? Okay. Domitian was just a... All right, first of all, here's another interesting thing, John, it was to me. When we come to the end of the 19th century, the vast majority of scholars put Revelation before 70 A.D. The vast majority of modern credits put it before 70 A.D. The 
putting it at the time of Domitian, in other words, swinging back to Domitian, is actually a later thing. But it's in our generation, see? And, uh, the, and it takes place for theological reasons and not historical reasons. Now, do you understand what I'm saying there? Okay. That in other words, it's not because of any historical findings. The historical findings have not been advantageous to Domitian. In other words, the historical findings say that the persecution of Christians was totally exaggerated. This is people like F.F. F. Bruce, John A.T. Robinson, okay, to mention, uh, to mention others, but those, those two. And that uh, also that the statement from Irenaeus about uh, Polycarp and John is one ambiguous statement, okay? The internal evidence of the book has always been pre-destruction of Jerusalem, and even Adam Clark, you alluded to, Adam Clark lets you know in his commentary that he believes the internal evidence favors pre-destruction of Jerusalem. And in fact, Clark was so bothered that after writing the entire commentary, he got to Revelation, and, he, and he, by the way, he tells you this in the introduction to his, to his commentary, to, to Revelation. He says that he almost didn't even write a commentary on Revelation. The reason because that you have this strong feeling over there you know, about bringing this down through the centuries based on this statement of Irenaeus quoting Polycarp. But the internal evidence is pre-destruction of Jerusalem. And, and, and uh, Clark goes back and forth in his commentary, and, he, and, and he'll even make statements like, I will admit, this sounds like it applies to the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the temple, etc., you know. And so I really appreciate Clark from the standpoint considering the information that he was operating with at his time and, and looking at all the sources. Clark is very honest. In fact, one of the reasons that Clark, he, although Clark was a conservative Methodist, but you will find people in all religious groups with Clark's commentary, and one of the reasons is the man's objectivity and his honesty and his scholarship. But that, I mean, that was his statement on, on that in Revelation. Um, but at the end, now... Note on these handouts, I give you the very first one. And I'll show you the, the, one of the important things for this. Uh, by the way, on mentioning this from a standpoint of fellowship, there is no reason this should ever have been a matter of fellowship with any group. In other words, it doesn't affect the way anybody lives, etc. It affects a particular doctrine within the, the New Testament itself. Uh, look at the second column. Second column and come down below the picture and where it says Revelation 16 and then notice the next statement. I've got it circled. Most scholars believe that Revelation and other prophecies refer to such epical events as Jesus' death and resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Then he tells you what the theologians are teaching. But in a context where he, you want to take it off the hook, honey. In a context where uh, where he tells you where the, what the theologians are teaching, he tells you that the scholars, most of them, put it before 70 A.D. Okay, the historical... Now, notice the importance of this event. Uh, in the first part there, what, the reason this got in Time Magazine is that it came out in a question and answer session that pres this is back in 1984, uh, when, when Russia's still a power, and uh, that President Reagan believed 
these teachings on Revelation and the second coming of Christ and the Armageddon and the big battle that's going to take place over there. And so a lot of scholars became very disturbed because they thought that, uh, that this would cause him to lean towards a nuclear war, if necessary. And see, the, the right-wing fundamentalist Christians uh, seem to have no hesitancy about going to war in the Middle East because they think that's the way things are going to end. Well, notice over in the third column, to show you again how they do this kind of thing, where it says, Falwell, uh, in the third paragraph down, the third column, Falwell's followers believe Christians will be swept or raptured into heaven before the Great Tribulation. A common version of the end is that the Soviet Union, the evil northern empire, Ezekiel 38-39, will swoop down upon Israel but be defeated. Where is that evil Soviet empire now that's going to swoop down on Israel? That's 1984. Okay, I go back and get another article and, and, and just, you know who that evil empire became a few years ago? Saddam Hussein. And you know who it was before that, before uh, Russia? It was Hitler. And you know who it was going back in time? It was the Pope in Rome. Whoever the bad guy, these people that take Revelation and drag it all through the centuries, see it's figurative language, and it applies to a judgment situation. So you can apply it to any judgment situation. Just like I said in the Old Testament, the same language is applied to Babylon, to Egypt, to Edom, etc. It's a judgment. That's why that you don't know what judgment it's talking about until you put it in its historical context. And so all through the centuries, these people have got up there and talked about whoever the bad country was or the bad guy on the scene, plot all that figurative language. I mean, just like when they take the signs and they say, before the Lord returns, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and famines and earthquakes. Brethren, all that is happening right now. You know, wars and rumors, it's going on. You know, he's coming back. The time is near. I've heard that so many times. Since that time, though. There's, there's never been a single solitary time in the history of mankind coming on that you couldn't say that, right? We thought it was over when they tore the walls down over in Berlin, but can you say there's wars and rumors of wars right now? Sure you can, and you will 10 years from now if time goes on, and you will 10 years after that. Uh, man, if man knows how to do anything, it's fight. You know, he seems, seems, seems to, he, he, he'll, you know, as for whatever reason, you know, we've always. But, and look, what about famines? Every bit of time that a famine, is there a famine going on in the earth right now? Are people dying by the thousands and the thousands in Ethiopia and Africa and some of those places? Some of those places in Africa haven't had rain for about five years. Do we have earthquakes each year? We do, don't we? Earthquakes and famines every year, war, rumors of wars. But if you move into a small area, a small geographical area, do you have earthquakes and famines and wars? all the time. You don't. And when Jesus uttered this, in Jerusalem, we're at a time of peace. The, the period of peace really began with Augustus. And uh, Augustus Caesar comes on the throne at about 27 B.C. And from that period on, we have what historians refer to as the longest period of peace in the civilized world. And it was peace because Rome controlled the civilized world. Just like they had peace in Russia when they had when they right after Stalin. And up until they got freedom, they had peace. They had peace in Yugoslavia until they got freedom, didn't it? And then when people got their freedom, they started 
fighting. Well, there was peace when Jesus said that because Rome had an iron hand. And in geographical areas, you don't have famines every year and you don't have earthquakes every year. So when Jesus gave those signs, those people in that area, when they saw the famines and the earthquake, and when they, when they heard the nations rising up against Rome and all the sword rattling and Israel declaring war on Rome, well, then that was evidence to the Christians that the time was near at hand. And it was going to, and it was going to end, and it had meaning uh, to them. Okay, this is just a good example in that article to show the importance of it uh, from the standpoint that uh, the, theolog the theologians have made a heyday with this. Uh, Foy Wallace, Jr., uh, in the first page on the material from him. Uh, let's see. Uh, I've got... Uh, look at the second paragraph there on page six now. I'm on Foy Wallace. Like other students, the author has in the past attempted to tread the tangled maze of future prophecy theory of Revelation from A.D. 96 through the Dark Ages to the end of time. Like all the others who did so, he bogged down in the meshes of the wilderness. Such an effort is as traditional as the Catholic calendar of popes, etc. Okay. Then he goes on to talk about the placing of the material out of its time frame. And then the part I've got underlined, after many years of intensive study, it is a calculated conclusion of the author that the symbols of revelation were fulfilled in the experience of the early church. It pairs a pre-destruction of Jerusalem date, it is prophetic only in the sense of an apocalyptic description of the struggle of the early church with the Jewish and Roman persecutors and this spectacular and phenomenal victory over the pagan and persecuting powers. Okay, now on page 15, flip to the next page, he tells you, and by the way, he'll elaborate more in detail, the couple of arguments for putting it in 95 or 96 AD. By the way, they've never been internally. Oh, one thing I might mention here, too. I know that when I read through it, their arguments, I never could see how anybody could read Revelation 11 and, and apply that to 95, 96. I mean, when you, you talk about the holy city being trampled underfoot for three and a half years, uh, and he says this is the place where that is being spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. I didn't say anybody could miss that. And so I thought, how do they explain this? And so then I read from the writings, their writings, those who put it in 95, 96, and you know how the way they explain that? They don't. They say that it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, but then it was incorporated in the writing of John, the Revelation, in 95 and 96. That's in just that one chapter, or what? Oh, that part right there in Revelation 11. See, the, the parts, I'm saying that there are parts of Revelation that so obviously applied to the before the destruction of Jerusalem that you just can't get away from it. And so what the those scholars do, at least a number of them, I mean, I'll just go from the ones I've read from on it, looking at their explanation, they acknowledge that those parts were written before but then was incorporated. They still won't turn loose of that 95, 96. It was incorporated. Well, you have, in my judgment, an absurdity that doesn't even make sense to have John saying something before 70 A.D. about the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation and then this writer in 95, 96, talking about uh, uh, the end of the world, or Rome, etc., and, uh, and he goes back and grabs that quote. 
but it doesn't even mention the fact that Jerusalem is destroyed. Another thing, keep in mind, John is a Jew and he's an apostle. If John is writing this, John the Apostle, in 95-96 during the days of Domitian, that is 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And John doesn't even allude to it. Doesn't even allude to it. It doesn't even make sense to me. Because every time the writers spoke of a judgment to come, they always referred back to past judgments as, as proof that God was true to his word. That's why that Sodom and Egypt and Babylon are referred back to. So remember when Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he said it would be like in the days of Noah, in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he talks about Lot. They were reminding, hey, look what God did. He's true to his word. Well, here is John. If he's talking about the end of the world and other things, he's got the perfect thing to refer to. Hey, look at what God did to his own people. He doesn't even refer back to it. Another thing that will come out in, in this material is that in 95, 96, John was an old man pushing 100. And the only record we have of his physical condition comes from Jerome. And Jerome said he was so infirm that he had to be carried to the church building. At what time? 95. John, see, John was the, would have been about a, pushing 100 years of age. Pretty good evidence that he really was still alive at that time. Then. Oh, yeah, he, there's no question about it being alive. The question is whether he wrote Revelation. Okay. But I'm saying that, that the person who wrote Revelation writes with vitality and vigor, and he's been so aggressive in proclaiming this message that he's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. John is a pretty strong... And keep in mind, we're not back before the flood when people are living all these years. That uh, the people in the first century, on the average, don't live as long as we do. And John is... Uh, we've got him... If he wrote it in 96, we've got him up there in 95, 96, vic vic proclaiming the gospel so vigorously that he gets banished to the Isle of Patmos and then he writes this really high-strung, vigorous letter and, and comfort to, to these people. Still doing pretty good at 68 or 69, though, wasn't he? What's the big difference between <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that. Papa was running at 68, yeah, but he's true. not running now. I, I can preach Mike about a grandfather that's 100, a little over 100 now. He don't run anywhere. And he doesn't, he doesn't most people, uh, by the way, 100 can't hear. Uh, does that need flipped over? No. Most people that are about 100 can't hear. In fact, I'd like for somebody to find me somebody that was close to 100 that can see without glasses uh, or close to 100 that doesn't have cataracts on their eyes. You find anybody 100, they've already had cataracts removed once. Uh, I'm saying that if John was vigorously preaching, he was a lot different than people that are close to 100 nowadays yeah. who can't see and who can't hear and who don't have, keep in mind back then, they didn't have all the medications that we have right now. Okay, now, uh, I'm not going through on all of that on the thing. You can go through on that on your own, the, the material by Wallace. Okay, now on the, uh, this other material, uh, this prelude to glory, You've got that. Is that number one on that section? You've got it. Here is. Uh, I've got it in there. Page 137 and 138. Trial of the King, 137th page number. What's the matter? Somebody's out there. It's just a truck pulled in, turned around, and cut their lights off, and come back on. Hey, wait a minute. Okay, we parked up there. Turned off his lights, and then he's pulling out. O
Don't worry about it. Hey, Lake. It's Jackie and I brought Terry. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Now, when you read uh, Revelation and all the symbols, okay, and by the way, Wallace has some good comments on that. At best, you're going to have some difficulties, obviously, because all those symbols stand for something, right? The only way you can even begin to understand them is to put it in its proper historical setting, because whatever historical setting you put it in, that's the way you're going to begin to look at those, those judgment symbols. And so I'm saying, the, obviously, the symbols are for a reason. Now, Wallace points out, this because you, you might ask the question in your mind, at least I did, why in the world write it this way in the first place? Why write it in, in other words, why not just come out and say Nero or Domitian, and instead of saying beast, call this guy's name. Um, and all of these uh, symbols that are used through there, we live in a free country where there's freedom of the press. We are unique to history. Um, even behind the Iron Curtain and in other countries of the world today, I'm talking about when there was an Iron Curtain, in other countries of the world that did not have freedom and you have a totalitarian type government, when people write things against the government, many times they do not put their name on it and they use a lot of different figurative statements that the people can relate to. And they do it for a reason. When uh, Remember the guy that is, uh, I can't think of his name, that the Muslims have a death penalty out on him right now? He wrote the book, Satanic Verses. Okay. They didn't have any problem figuring that he was talking about Muhammad and the Koran. He doesn't say that. See, he comes from a Muslim background, and he knew that they would kill him. So he writes this fiction story, Satanic Verses. But man, the Muslims picked up on that, and they are so close to the information that they had no problem with his Muslim background and his writing like that, that he's talking about Muhammad, and he's referring to the Koran as a work of Satan. And so they've, they've got a death watch out on him right now. In other words, he wasn't able to do it. All right. In a, this apocalyptic literature developed several centuries before Christ. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature in Daniel. There's some in Ezekiel. And it, it generally is used by people who have been conquered by another people and who are writing about their persecuting forces. And they do so by using a lot of figurative statements, but yet it can be understood by the people that are involved in the events at that particular time. All right, now, for example, when you, when you read the term the beast in Revelation, you can see that if you were alive at that time and receiving Revelation, if, if it was before 70 A.D., you wouldn't have any problem at all identifying Nero as a beast, would you? Or let's say if there was persecution during the time of Domitian and you were living then, you'd have no problem at all putting it there with Domitian, okay, if it was. So I'm saying the people there had no problem applying that. Okay, the same with a lot of other situations. The difficulty for you and I is, uh, number one, we are not used to that kind of apocalyptic language. 
That's why that we mentioned that even when it comes to the stars falling from heaven and the sun and the moon and the earth being shook and everything like that, uh, English readers through the years have, have preached that literal, the end of the world. It's going to literally burn up. We show it when we talk about something called hell. Uh, this literal burning fire out there in the sky somewhere that people are going to be stuck in and roasted for ex all, all their existence and all like that. Do a little research on that and you find that there's three separate Greek words with three separate meanings and the King James translators rendered all three words with the one word hell and, they, and we come up with this literal fire in the sky. And again, it's by blending figurative language with some literal things that, that we come up with that. So I'm saying our problem is that, number one, we need to familiarize ourselves with the type language that's being used in the book itself. Number two, whenever you're reading something, a letter, I don't care who wrote the letter, if the further back in history that it was written, the more research you're going to have to do to fully understand the letter. And so that we're in a situation where this was written almost 2,000 years ago. And in another culture, in another language, and so we have to go back and familiarize ourselves in order to relate to it. So I, what I'm trying to say there is the person who is not willing to go back and read the history at that time, there is no way that he should even start in trying to understand all that's, that's being said there. And, and I don't know how few. I don't want to exaggerate it. I'm just saying that, that most of the preachers that I've heard get up and preach on this and talk about these things obviously were not well studied in the, the history of that time. And, and just like uh, some of the things that I found out, just like one of the things we mentioned earlier, when, when all my adult life I've heard it preached that Domitian was this tremendous persecutor of Christians and Christians lost their life and everything like that. And then when I go and, and I check out the history myself and I find out that there is not one single solitary documented case of a Christian going to his death because of Domitian. And that I read top scholars saying that they believe it was Christian scholars several centuries later that exaggerated the whole thing that happened under Domitian and that there's no way that it would even compare to what happened under Nero uh, on the thing. And I mean, that's just, that's a historical fact. We talk about Nero and we talk about uh, Domitian. Okay, another thing that's a historical fact is the age of John. Another fact of the book of Revelation is that Revelation is written while other apostles are still living. Revelation 2 and 2, the church at Ephesus is complimented because they put to the test those that claim to be apostles and find, found them false. Well, if the apostles are all dead, why do you have such a problem putting people to the test who claim to be apostles? Well, see, by the time you get to 95, 96, all the apostles are dead. The only alive one is John. Peter and John, historians agree, go to their death during the persecution of Nero between 64 and, and 68. And so Peter and John go to their death. Peter and Paul. Sorry. Thanks, Mark. Peter and Paul go to their death during the persecution of Nero. So during that time, the two great apostles, Peter and Paul, go to their death under Nero, and John is banished to the, the Isle of Patmos, and we have no apostles other than John when we get up in the, the 90s A.D. Even though all the apostles but John were dead by then, 
you could, there's still people claiming to be apostles today. So the fact that they were complimented for testing people and determined to be false, I, don't, I guess I don't see the argument. Well, the way they tested them was uh, that uh, when they were comp- it was through the miracles themselves. In other words, we were in the age of the miraculous gifts. And the apostles had the ability to lay on hands and to perform miracles and things like that. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, calls on his miraculous ability as evidence of, of his apostleship and all. But then once we have the depth of the apostles, we have the end of those miraculous gifts that were given uh, to the apostles. And although there have been those that claim, uh, there's, uh, in other words, I don't... Uh, know of anybody that really put them. In other words, they might have a little group. Like, for example, the Mormons have got 12 people that claim to be apostles there. Uh, They sure don't perform any miracles and nobody outside the Mormon church, you know, believes in them or has any problem with them or anything anything like that. Or Paul and Peter were both killed in the 60s under Nero. And uh, you find Paul going into Ephesus in Acts 19. Okay, what year was that? It'd be somewhere after... 50 A.D., somewhere around there. For, for their steadfastness. Uh-huh. And the their trial, well, it would seem like if uh, they weren't there very long, then they wouldn't be commended like that. Maybe, maybe that's kind of a far-fetched idea. All of the... Uh, uh, if they'd been the, two years old, then, you know, that would kind of... A, all of the churches you read about in the New Testament that were started in Acts, uh were in long enough to be commended or rebuked. To the church at Galatia, Paul writes to them uh, about somewhere around 49 or 50 A.D. and says, I'm amazed that you're so soon departed from the gospel that I gave. The the church at uh, Philadelphia, which he also started, he writes to them and compliments them very highly. He also writes to the church at Rome, compliments them very highly for their faith. Uh, He compliments the, the Ephesians and yet tells them that there will be a falling away that will take place and grievous wolves will enter in amongst the elders there. Uh, you know, that's uh, found also after he established the church in, in Acts 19. It was established before 60. All of them were. All of them were. And see, they, they're all, all seven of them are located in Asia Minor in close proximity uh, to one another. In fact, if you get a map, you can, you can locate the seven churches and you can also uh, locate Patmos uh, in the Aegean Sea where John had been banished to. Now, another thing that will be brought out in some of the sources I gave you is that after the destruction of Jerusalem and the ceasing of the Jewish persecution uh, going up to 96, the church really grows. And all evidence indicates that there was a lot more than any seven churches in that area. In fact, you could all historians, I, I believe, would God, there was a whole lot more than seven churches. But before 70 A.D., there's no record of anything in that area other than those particular churches. But then after that, a lot of, of other uh, in, in that particular area. But the, uh, from an internal standpoint, suffice it to say this, that from an internal standpoint, scholars have always recognized that before 70 A.D. See, the, if you're wondering where, like, uh, John, the big battle... If it were not for it having been used in such a prominent way uh, to teach the second coming of Christ in the end of the world, it wouldn't be a big deal. It could just be examined in an honest way and that would be it. 
but it's it's because of that particular doctrine. I mean, it's been preached and preached and preached, and uh, people have been motivated to come down the aisle every time, all through the years, and all on it. And it's a big thing. And let me say this: it doesn't bother me one iota that anybody believes or continues. I don't believe anybody's going to lose their soul. It's not even a big deal to me if somebody wants to believe that Jesus is going to literally come back on a cloud and an angel is going to literally blow a trumpet and people are going to literally rise up to meet him in the air and that after they rise up meet him in the air, they'll gather the other and they'll have a big bonfire out there and all the others will be literally thrown in that bonfire. It doesn't bother me one bit that anybody believes it. I believe, I sincerely believe it misrepresents Christianity. And where it bothers me is that, see, my background is not just straight Church of Christ or, or, or religion. I come from a background where I've also did a lot of reading and had a lot of association with, with skeptics. And uh, I know that a lot of things that are preached about the Bible are a real problem for infidels and atheists who find it hard to believe some things about the Bible that in reality I believe are absolutely false. And I believe the Bible gets misrepresented. Uh, and, and I think this is uh, this is one of those areas. Uh, infidels for years have used as one of the evidences against the inspiration of the New Testament the fact that this end of the world judgment was supposed to happen in that generation and it didn't happen. And what should have been a prophecy that was fulfilled and validated Jesus and was an evidence of the New Testament became something that was used as a false prophecy that was not fulfilled and is an evidence against uh, the, the inspiration of the New Testament. But I have, if I'm in a church and they're singing a song about Jesus coming again, that doesn't faze me at all. It's not, in other words, it's interesting to me that it is that big a thing uh, to those. But of course you've got preachers, I guess, that are, that are up there preaching that and all. What does bother me is not that they believe it, John, the ones that do it. It bothers me when, when I know that if anybody does any reading or study and that whatever side of this they fall on, there is no way that somebody can read and study this and get up there in a dogmatic way and teach that that was written in Domitian and this end of the world thing and all like that in the way they do. That, and to, to call something as heresy, when if that person has done any reading, they know some of the most outstanding biblical scholars that have ever lived have believed and taught that. They know that before the turn of the century, the majority of scholarship put it there. They know right now that outstanding scholars in all groups recognize that. Like J. Adams, for example, that I, I gave you a copy of his thing. Uh, he is one of the top scholars within the Presbyterian Church. Uh, John A.T. Robinson uh, is from England, recognized as one of the top scholars in the world. Uh, nobody, I don't know anybody outside of the Church of Christ that would call him a heretic. Uh, Young, analytical concordance to the Bible, other materials. I don't know anybody who called him a heretic, you know, and that's what he put. So I'm saying that, that there's a, at least they ought to be honest enough to say, hey, there's very good arguments both ways if they want to say that. And I believe such and such, but you need to examine the arguments. Well, that's fine. You know, that's, that, man, that's honest. That's what Adam Clark does. And he operates on the information he's got. Uh, my complaint is this dogmatic presentation of something that the there just simply is not the material to present it in that way. Uh, I mean, when a man is uh, is operating with as little evidence that I found when I researched it, then I, I just don't see how it can even you know be presented in that way. 
And when people can take language and use it as literal, when if they've read the Old Testament at all, they know it's figurative in the Old Testament when it applies to cities and countries and all. I have problems with that. Even if they want to believe it literal, fine, but at least point out that that same language is used figuratively all through the Old Testament and that the Old Testament, you know, is the Bible of the early church. They don't even have the New Testament. It's in the process of, of being written, you know, at that particular time. But it, it was, it's nothing that should be, you know, that big a thing other than a person simply wanting to sit down and study it, you know, and, and come to an understanding of it. Uh, on this prelude to glory, uh, 137 and 138, this is uh, really not dealing with this subject. It's uh, dealing with the crucifixion of Christ. And he gives the quote of Jesus in Luke 23, 27. You see that on 137? Uh, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren woman, the womb that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Next page. Jesus comments here on almost identical to those made in Matthew chapter 24. Here as well as there, he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which would come to pass 40 years later. It is virtually impossible for us in 20th century America to visualize the despicable conditions that prevailed in Jerusalem during the siege by the Romans in AD 70. The degradation of the Israelites can be shown by one short incident reported by Josephus. He quotes Josephus from Wars, volume 6 and 4, uh, volume 6, section 4, page 4. Uh, notice here when he's not talking about the second coming, he's just talking about the crucifixion of Christ. He has no problem recognizing that, he's, that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, now read that comment on the what... Uh, on the event of the destruction of Jerusalem. She, she then attempted a most unnatural thing, snatching up her son who was a child, sucking at her breast. She said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve you in this war, this famine and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. This famine also will destroy us, even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditions seditious rogues more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditions, violets, and a byword to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and roasted him, and ate the one half of him and kept the other half by her concealed. By the way, this is not on... In other words, the Roman army has besieged the city. They're starving them out. Uh... When Jesus talked about all these things that will happen, pestilence, famine, etc., in antiquities, when a city was besieged, then there began a waiting game. And, and the army began to try to starve them out and cut off their water. Well, then they began to ration food in the city. All right, the first thing that happens, what happens to your body when you don't get enough nutrition? What about your ability to fight diseases? Okay, your immune system is weakened, and so any time a people are not getting enough nutrition, they have all kinds of plagues and ailments and diseases that they normally would fight off. All right, then they become hungry, just like I uh, watched a program last night on prime time about a, a dealing with people that were tortured and persecuted in various parts of the world, 
and he mentioned the man they was dealing with. It showed that he had been uh, tortured. Said the all he had to drink for a certain period of time was his own urine. Okay, when people are starving to death and they don't have water, they will eat or drink anything they can get their hands on to stay alive. Whenever people have been starved in situations like that, when people die, they kill them and eat them. They drank their urine. And it became so bad that when babies were born, they ate them. And here's an example that Josephus gives of a woman slaying her own baby and, and, and actually devouring the child. And notice the alternative to the Jew. If we surrender, we become slaves. And they would. And Rome will take their wrath out on us, or we die. What's our choice? Jews by the tens of thousands died in that. When you have a lot of people dying, you have a lot of stench. Their bodies by the thousands, Josephus said, were cast into the valley of Hinnon. That's Gehenna. They translated hell in the New Testament. They were literally burned up in the valley of Hinnon. The King James doesn't do us a favor by taking the valley of Hinnon. Gehenna is a Greek word that means the valley of Hinnon. You can read about it in the Old Testament and translate it with the word hell. Uh, the word hell is not an accurate rending of the word. Uh, the word hell is an old English word that means the unseen. It is a good rendering of the Greek word Hades, the place of the unseen. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a good rendering of, of that particular word. The place of the unseen would mean really know what that is. The newer translations will always put no uh, hell and they'll put the hen at the bottom. Good. That's good to bring up, Brian. The newer translations. It's interesting. You know why they put hell there? And then they footnote either Gehenna or Tardidus or Hades. Because, see, they, they want to, they got to sell their Bibles. And most English readers, if they picked up the Bible and it said the Valley of Hinnon and Hades and Tardidus, and it didn't say hell, a lot of our right-wing preachers would be up there talking about how terrible this new translation, they've worked hell out of the Bible. That's right. When the King James translators translated the Bible, have you ever wondered why it says baptism? Baptism is not an English word. Baptism is a Greek word that means immersion. Why not put immersion? Because the Church of England practiced sprinkling. And King James has ordered this translation to, to harmonize and cut down some of the fuss over the various translations. So they don't want to be uh, in problems with the Church of England, and they don't want to lie. So what do they do? They refuse to translate the word, and they write in the word baptism. Right now, why don't the Bibles put immersion? instead of baptism. Well, individual translations like Williams, Beck, etc., they will put immersion. Why don't the standardized Bible put immersion instead of baptism? Because the biggest percent of the religious world, the Catholics, etc., sprinkle are poor. So you're not going to sell any Bibles to those people. So we, put, we, we just keep putting baptism there, and you have to go to the dictionary and look it up. And by the way, the same, a number of words that we, we deal with, if they would just simply translate what was there, people would be a lot better off. Uh, what's our Lord's name? Jesus. You say, the sweetest name. Uh, his name is Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew word for Jehovah saves. Jesus is a Greek name. His parents didn't give him a Greek name. Jesus is, an English is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Joshua. And that, that's who he would have been to the Jews of that day, Joshua. And yet we, we call him Jesus, just like it was Jesus Christ, first and last name. Christ is a Greek word meaning the anointed one. Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning the anointed one. If we was going to do it accurate, we ought to say 
Joshua, the anointed one. He was separated from all the other Joshua's. Right. Joshua, the anointed of God. Or Jehovah saves, the anointed of God. That would literally be his name. And But you can't say that. It would be blasphemy to say his name is uh, Joshua. But anyway, uh, suffice it to say that you cannot just pick up an English translation of the Bible and, and not read anything else. I'm not saying that you can't learn enough to, to become a Christian and be saved to be a godly person or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that when you get down to the point of your uh, uh, beyond the fundamentals and you're not a babe in Christ and you're wanting to grow and everything, then the, it's not going to happen without some research and some study and, and some using of words and going to the dictionary and studying a little history and, and things of that nature. And that's, and that's what preachers that are doing it full time ought to be doing and a lot do. Uh, John? That's um, a little bit off from what, from what we're starting right at hand right now, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, verse 51, the following, that behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, yeah. but we shall all be changed more than the twinkle of an eye, the last trumpet sound, the trumpet sound of the dead will be raised in perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable sound is perishable, it's more, much more than immortal, immortality. But when this perishable will have been put on in perishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about what was about what was written, death be swallowed up in victory, or death will your sting. Death will victory, or death will your sting. So, so glancing at that, in casual reading, you think, well, there's going to be a time where not everybody's going to die, everybody's going to be changed, and death is going to be no more. Okay, now first of all, that's we could open up another bag of worms getting into Corinthians, okay? Because we're in, in other words, in what we're talking about is first of all, John is revelation, right? When it was written, what it was applied to, and all. Now, on on that, that it would, it it doesn't. Uh, so far as let's take some of the statements that are made in that in First Corinthians. First of all, he says, "Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God," right? Okay, uh, Jesus said that there would be no marrying or giving in marriage, you would be like the angels, right? So when we talk about heaven, we also read in the Bible that uh, the body returns to the dust from which it goes, the spirit returns to God who gave it, right? So we're talking about the, the eternal man is the spiritual man, okay? So whatever is raised, is the, it's spiritual, right? Okay. I believe the resurrection is exactly that. In other words, I believe in the resurrection, I do not believe that this literal body will be raised. Uh, and I believe it goes right back to the dirt from which it comes. And uh, the, your spirit uh, at your death, I believe, goes into the Hadean realm as, as taught in the scriptures to, to be with the Lord. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I don't believe Jesus is coming back in the literal body. Uh, you know, he's a spirit. Uh, and we're spirits, and our body will go back. And, and, and so I'm saying these pictures, that, that uh, like the last day of Christ, the tribulation, and all this kind of good stuff, and you see these uh, men and women floating up in the sky. Well, our bodies are not made to float. We don't have wings. We're not made to fly, right? And you, I mean, it, it does, in trying to simplify it, it does an injustice to it. Uh, you, that, that what, what, is going to be with God is your spirit. And we haven't been into the spirit realm yet, and we can't see into the spirit realm. 
but if that was raised. In other words, we're not saying in this that there's not going to be a resurrection. There, there'll be a resurrection. Our spirit will go to be with the Lord. There'll be a judgment. Uh, the New Testament talks plainly about a judgment. There'll be a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. Uh, the unrighteous will be eternally separated from God, the righteous eternally with him. So there's no question whatsoever. We're, we're just talking about, uh, number one, what was revelation in these letters and these judgment scenes talking about? And, and from that, this concept that Jesus is going to literally come up in the sky somewhere where everybody in this world somehow or another is going to be able to see and, and there's going to be a trumpet blown. We've got a song we sang, When the Trumpet Blows. Well, I have nothing against that song. And when I sing it, and I sing it, I'm thinking figurative. You know, I'm not listening for a... But I know that the, it's preached as literal. Uh, uh, Herbie went over to Monteagle, you know, the sermon, the meeting they had over there, and he said the guy straight made them all happy. He stood up there and told him he believed in a literal burning hell and, you know, all these heretics that don't and all like that. Well, if you're going to have your literal burning, first of all, I don't know how you burn a spirit. I don't know how you burn a spirit. Uh, two, uh, the same people that believe in that do not believe in a literal streets of go when it comes to heaven. You know, the literal streets of go and the pearly gates and all we recognize we're dealing with uh, symbolic language. Uh, when Jesus talks about a judgment scene, he talks about the sh separating the shaft from the wheat, using the winnowing fork, separating the shaft from the wheat, and then burning up the shaft in unquenchable fire, and you got the wheat. Everybody says the wheat is figurative, the shaft is figurative, the winnowing fork is figurative, but the fire is literal. Well, what are you burning up in your literal fire if your shaft is figurative? <laughs> We know we're not talking about shaft, we're talking about people, right? And with wheat, we're talking about people. So wheat and shaft is, is, is the good people and the unrighteous. And, and we know we're not talking about a literal winnowing fork. We're talking about a process the Lord will go through in judgment. And, and so, so here we got something that everybody acknowledges. We, every time we see the word fire, it's literal, you know? And, and, and there again, it's like almost, to my mind, and some of these people just enjoy telling everybody that the creator of the universe has a literal furnace, and you're going to roast you. Number one, that if I was an unbeliever, I have a real problem with trying to convert somebody to Christianity by saying, you either become a Christian or God will roast you forever. Sure. It's like, uh, uh, Barbara, you marry me or I'll blow your brains out. <laughs> right? I mean, that, isn't that what we've got God in the picture of doing? Repent or I'll burn you. Well, I don't have any problems with that. <laughs> I don't, I think it does such an, a, such an injustice to God that uh, separation from God is a natural consequence of people who will not repent. God hates it. Uh, he weeps, and, 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 that's, and Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So to picture something as a natural consequence that people bring on themselves because they refuse to respond to the love of God and then use that figurative language to talk about the awfulness of being separated from God, that is one thing. And to put a literal fire where preachers get up there and you burn this literal fire 
And I don't know if Jack and Louise was with Barbara and I when we went to the meeting down with Bryson in Whitwell or not. And at the end of his sermon on hell, some poor soul come down the hall just bawling and crying. I don't want to burn in hell. That's what he was saying. And so that's, I thought, what, what a reason to come, you know, that you don't want to burn in hell. There wasn't anything said about the love of God or anything. It's just you're going to burn in hell if you, if you don't do it. You know what I think is so sad about that, too, is that so many times I've, I've heard it preached all my life, you know, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. This little old lady that's real sincere and loves the Lord, if she's wrong on one point, sure. then she's going to burn forever and forever in hell, too, right oh, along yeah. with the, the worst criminals, oh, yeah. you know? Mother Teresa will be right there with Hitler. Yeah, yeah. That's right. She, you know, she hasn't got all her doctrine straight. And I don't know what she believes on this, but she'd be right there with Hitler, according to that theology. Uh, what I'd like for you to do is read through what I give you tonight on your own, and then come with uh, questions and comments based on what you've read, and I'll have that much more to hand you. Are we going to discuss and then, text, or are we going yeah, to discuss this? Well, the only thing, yeah, we're going to discuss the text, and we'll come with questions on that. But the whole problem, the text is easy. When you get it in its historical... No, wait a minute. It's easy when you get it in its historical setting. See, the, the, there's no problem when you put it in its historical setting. The, the problem is putting it in its historical setting. And uh, that, uh, that is the key to the whole thing, uh, is you know, putting it in the historical setting itself. But yes, we will uh, uh, discuss the text, but that you know will we'll depend on that, uh, Mark.